you guys have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts this morning. We're going to... Last week we had our intro and we tied the connections between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Now they were... Uh, that the book of Acts is a second or a continuation of what Luke began to record in his gospel uh, to a man named Theophilus, this lover of God. And so we're going to start our journey through the book of Acts. So if you're there on chapter one, say amen. All right, let's read um, a portion of our passage tonight, or this morning, tonight, because it feels so dark in here, doesn't it? It almost feels like a Wednesday night. Um, Let's read together, starting in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem. And in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Luke has set the stage for us today for how Jesus intends to continue his mission after he's gone through the disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today we'll see how Jesus will continue to fulfill that promise given to Israel To show that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through his death and resurrection and that he will return to establish it. We will see Jesus establish his followers as empowered witnesses to him throughout the world until he returns. We will see how this call and ministry unites his followers, setting a foundation for the church that we still find practice today. So I need to paint this historical setting for you as we start digging into the book of Acts. So roughly 40 days prior to what we're studying today, Jerusalem was just a buzz. Many Jews had made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would follow after that Passover day. 
This is one of the great three annual festivals uh, celebrated by the Jews. Uh, And it would occur in the March-April time, you know, around the time that we have our Easter celebration. And then Pentecost would follow. This was 50 days after Passover. And it was a major harvest party when all the, the crops were being harvested. And the Jews, they called it Shavuot, if I'm saying that correctly. Hopefully I am. Or the Feast of Weeks. And this was a time of celebration of what the Lord had provided. But there would be hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over, uh, from all over coming to Jerusalem. And in, there would be in Jerusalem, in various upper rooms and various dwellings, there would be many Jews coming from many different locations different cultures and different languages that were present in Jerusalem. And so we have like a big, exciting time that is happening in Jerusalem, but it has been kind of tainted with what had happened with this man named Jesus. And so Acts is continuing to tell the story of, of Jesus and what, how he is going to continue to work in the world. You see, he had been crucified, and as we studied last week, he rose from the dead. And he had been spending time with his disciples during this period of 40 days before this time of Pentecost. And so we're going to pick up right here where some of Jesus' final sayings to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And so look at verse 1 for me. with me. It says... The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. And so Luke's making that connection to his gospel, actually almost saying verbatim what he said in the gospel uh, so as to connect the two messages here. And until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so they've been hearing him teach. He's been telling them about the things concerning the kingdom of God and proving himself to be alive from the dead. And it's in this time of gathering together in which Jesus was talking to his disciples that we see in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus has been talking to them about the kingdom of God. And they, they have this anticipation. But Jesus has a plan for how his ministry is going to continue on through his followers uh, until we see he returns from heaven. We see, we pick up Jesus today assembled together and giving them, uh, with his disciples, giving them instructions. And he tells them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. A promise that he had spoken to them about, a promise of baptism, 
the Holy Spirit. Interesting, we're doing baptism today to kind of correlate. and not We didn't choose it that way, that's just how it happened. But this baptism was going to happen soon. It was going to be with the Holy Spirit. Not like the one that John did with water, but with this one was going to be with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wanted them to stay in Jerusalem because this is where their ministry would begin. This is where he commissions them out of to continue their ministry. And this, as we, look, as we already heard, many Jews were already gathered in this area from all over in this one location. And they were to wait upon the Lord. I think about the disciples and how they might have felt. I don't know if they suspected anything to happen within the, in conjunction with the Feast of Weeks. But the disciples would wait in Jerusalem around 10 days from Jesus' ascension until the baptism of the Holy Spirit would occur. Now, one of the questions we might ask about who Jesus is talking to, his disciples, what did they know about baptism of the Holy Spirit? Was this a new concept that Jesus was teaching to them, or did they already have a framework for the Spirit of God working in the lives of his people? And honestly, I believe that their question that we looked at, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? I think that actually gives us and reveals what they were expecting in light of what Jesus had been teaching. Now, the Old Testament prophets spoke much about a pouring out of God's spirit upon his people. Now, just the, quoting the prophets, they understood that God would... Um, would come upon various individuals and speak his words through them. And they, they had people that were good prophets and they had some that were telling people what they wanted to hear. But the prophets spoke about a greater day in which there would be a pouring out of God's, God's spirit, that there wouldn't just be one prophet prophesying or two prophets or, you know, but all of God's people would be filled with his spirit. And it was associated with a a time of great renewal and blessing for Israel. So you can see why they would anticipate this. Is this the time? It was a message of the outpouring of God's spirit came to Israel while they were in exile. So you can think these people were out of their homeland, scattered about, having been pulled from their homes and their, their families and driven into these other cultures, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And this message was coming about this anticipation of God renewing things and pouring out His Spirit. It came at a time also when Israel was in rebellion to God. Spoke of repentance and renewal for those that turned to Him. I wanted to look at a couple of these um, passages today in Isaiah 32 verse 1 we read behold a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice this message of Isaiah begins with the rise of a righteous king who enforces the law maintains order and those that serve him acting justly this is a new king a new reign and the Lord goes on to describe the kingdom under such a king in verses 2 through 8. And the scriptures are on the board, so you can follow along. 
A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and cover and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. The tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things in generosity, and by generosity he will stand. Some of these concepts seem a little bit obscure, but the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. He begins to speak of judgment to come and the complacency of his people trusting in their own means of providing for themselves. And after speaking of the desolation that they would go through, Isaiah speaks of a future time of blessing. Look at verse 15. It'll be up on the board here. It says, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. See the renewal there? The wilderness will become a fruitful place, uh, so much so that it will look like a, wild, like a forest packed with vegetation. And this was a time of renewal for Israel where the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. So we can stand back from this moment and, and take this in from the perspective of the disciples. We have come to think about yourself as one of those disciples. We've come to believe and trust in Jesus as the anointed one of God, the Messiah, who defeated death and has risen from the grave. We've seen him resurrected in person. He taught truth. He did mighty works. And we know that he is the one that the scriptures have proclaimed as the king who will rule in righteousness. That's what we have come to believe about Jesus, who we've been following. And now he's speaking about this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This has to be the time that he's going to reveal the kingdom to Israel, right? This is what we've been taught. This has been our hope to free them from Roman occupation and rule. To establish his throne and to rule in righteousness, ushering in this time of blessing for Israel. That's their anticipation. They're looking for this great new work of what God was going to do. And when Jesus is talking about this pouring out of his spirit, it was just they were connecting these things. I want to look at another account from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Uh, Ezekiel begins in... um, By sharing with us what the Lord told him, Israel, when they dwelt in their own land, defiled it with their ways and their deeds. So he poured out his wrath upon them for the blood that they shed uh, on the land and for their idolatry. He explained to them that they why they were in captivity and scattered among the nations. They were under the Lord's judgment. He was disciplining these. His wrath had to go against their sin. But starting in verse 24, Ezekiel starts to declare a time of restoration. 
For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Wow, what a wonderful time. Where God is reigning in righteousness and his people are filled with his spirit, walking in righteousness, doing the right things, doing what pleases the Lord. And a central aspect of Jewish hope was the restoration of Israel. This hope included the return of lost tribes, the gathering of exiles, the restoration of the house of David, the kingly line, the restoration of the temple. They were looking for this kingdom to be restored to its former glory, like that of King David in Solomon's time. And you could see how the disciples had this expectation. The Messiah was here, the king was here, He's talking about pouring out his spirit. Is this it? Is this the time when the kingdom will be restored to Israel? And then Jesus has to, he almost like redirects them. He doesn't correct them though. Look at verse 7 with me. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness, witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He says to the, his disciples, the timing of these things, that's not to be of your concern. Don't worry about the establishing of this kingdom. That's what the Father has planned. He has his perfect timing. We do know that Jesus speaks of his return as being like a thief in the night. To be ready and expecting it like a servant ready for the return of his master. But Jesus, in turn, gives them instruction to what they were to be doing until he returns. Be his witness. They weren't wrong in understanding the pouring out of the Spirit being connected to the time of the restoration of the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't correct their understanding, but he addresses their thoughts on the timing. He says instead that the Holy Spirit will empower them to be witnesses to Jesus. They were to be witnesses of the coming kingdom, not to concern themselves with the establishing of it. That this was actually what the Lord was going to do. That he was going to raise up his people to be witnesses of him to the nations. That's actually what has been described of God's people. They were supposed to be in the Old Testament. But they were not. Instead, they went after the false idols. Instead, they they polluted the land with the blood of of sacrificing uh, to false gods. Even sacrificing their own children to false gods. They were to be witnesses to the nations of God 
but they had failed to do that. So what's Jesus doing here? He's starting over with a new creation, with a new people. His people, Israel, these were all Jewish men that were there, that he had commissioned with this. He's raising up these witnesses. It is true that the kingdom of God will be established in Jerusalem, that the Messiah will reign forever in righteousness and judge the righteous, and that the people of God's kingdom will be filled with his spirit. But right now, you're commanded to proclaim it in the power of the spirit. Theirs was to be a ministry kind of like John the Baptist. Remember, we talked about him last week, how he came preparing the way for Jesus' coming, Now, his disciples are to be preparing the way for his return by witnessing, by testifying of Jesus and who he is to the nations. Luke describes in chapter 1 of his gospel that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. How about that? This is a message and a powering of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus described as coming upon his people. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is described in a few different ways for us in Scripture. One, we have Jesus' teachings to his disciples about the Spirit in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 14. He says, And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We see Jesus describing a twofold relationship with the Holy Spirit. One, as dwelling with you, and two, will be in you. And here in Acts, we have another aspect. That is, that the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. So we see these different aspects to the relationship of God's people with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit described as dwelling with us, in us, and coming upon us. The Holy Spirit is with us prior to our conversion. He's the one that draws us. He convicts us of sin and points us to Jesus as our Savior. And as soon as we trust Jesus as our Savior, receiving Him, the Holy Spirit, we're told, takes up residence within us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? So there's an exchange of ownership. When we surrender our lives, when we receive Jesus, His Spirit comes in us. We also see that when He takes up residence within us, that He leads us in truth. John 16, 13 says, However, when He... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. But the Holy Spirit 
coming in us also gives the believer the assurance of salvation. The Holy Spirit being the seal of our salvation. In Ephesians 1 verse 13 it says, In him you also trusted, after hearing the word of truth, him being Jesus, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So then there's this relationship that Jesus describes here of empowerment. This is the third role, third way of relating with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes upon his disciples. It speaks of an overflow from our lives to the glory of God. It's an empowerment, as Jesus says, to be a witness for him to others. Look at verse 8 again with me. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. This word witness... It means one who has information or knowledge of something. And hence, one who can give information or bring to light or confirm something. In the Greek, it's the word uh, martyrs. And it's where we get our word martyr. It's used as a designation of those who have suffered death in consequence of confessing Christ as well. Or their witnessing of Jesus was the cause of their death. Doesn't mean that all who witness of Jesus will die for it. But it's used in conjunction with that situation. I love what Chuck Smith said here. He says, a witness is one who not only proclaims what he believes. He lives what he believes. He is what he believes. And he believes it so strongly that if necessary, he'll die for what he believes. That's how strong is his belief. He is a martyr. You can't stop him. He's not afraid to die for what he believes. And so that's what is being described of this empowering by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. And he says to them, start here in Jerusalem. Then Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, in the thought process of the Jews, was the center of the world. This is where it all went down for them. It's kind of like anybody who's from California. And I can say that because I'm California. We think that the whole world revolves around California, right? And, sorry if that offends anybody, but, you know, you don't really think that it's been said that there's California and then the rest of the U.S., right? So... But the Jews, they had such a passion for Israel that the whole, the whole world was centered around it. It was the center of their worship, their celebration, the place that they gathered as a, as a people group. And then from there, it would move out from Jerusalem to Judea. This was the countryside, the areas outside of the main city. 
And so we can think about it in our context. We have Winston, Salem, Central, and then we have like King and some of those other places that are around on the outside, Kernersville, maybe, you know, and you're moving out a little bit from the city. And then you had Samaria. These were those, in the Jew mind, that was the dodgy place you didn't want to go. These were enemies. These were people you despised. And then out from there, the ends of the world. That means that this message ultimately was to go out to people that weren't Jews. This wasn't just for the Jewish person. But this progression that Jesus describes here is what the book of Acts follows. As we continue our study through the book of Acts, we'll see that the ministry begins at the heart of Jerusalem, but then it will follow that progression to Judea, to Samaria, and the rest of the world. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. A Sabbath day Sabbath, Sabbath day journey. It's about a, a, a half a mile or so, a little over a half a mile. And it was to the east, this Mount Olive, or, the Mount of Olives, as we have it called in um, some other translations, other translations, was to the east of Jerusalem. But these verses, they speak about Jesus' ascension, but also anticipate his return. Jesus will return in a cloud bodily, and his people will see him, and, will re- and his return will be on that Mount of Olives. This is a proclamation of what actually Zechariah said in 14.4. It says, in that day, his, the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved to the north and half of it toward the south. And then we see the, Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel gives some detail through a vision he had of the Son of Man ascending into heaven. The Son of Man was one of David's, or, uh, Daniel's favorite terms to refer to the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, it says... I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, the title for the Lord, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and tongues should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So we have this heavenly vision of Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven. But Jesus' ascension, it marked the end of his earthly ministry in the flesh. Yet it did not mark the end of his ministry on earth. But his work would be done through 
the disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it would go out into all the world. As I mentioned last week, Jesus taught that he had to go away so that the Holy Spirit would come. And the disciples, they were the ones in the power of the Spirit that were to be preparing the way for the return of the King, testifying of what he has done, and he will come back. Let's look at the rest of our chapter today, starting in verse 13. If you're there, say amen. All right, let's read. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The names of was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Sorry, guys. And it came known for, to all those who dwell, who, those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. Therefore, these men who have accompanied us accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said to you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go on to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so we see here that the, the disciples began to return to Jerusalem. They returned to that Airbnb that they booked for their stay, right? They had that nice big place that could accommodate all their family. But it says that they returned to that upper room. And then it lists out for us, Luke being the historian that he is, the names of the disciples were there. But also he included for us those women who followed Jesus. Mary, Jesus' mom, and his half-brothers. And we read later that, as we just read, that there were 120 people present at one point. So this had to be a pretty big room. The only one that was missing was Judas. 
And then Luke gives us insight as to what was going on as the fellowship of disciples, the gathering of these disciples, waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit. It says in these verses, we see three main components that are occurring in the early church. One, their gathering, their emphasis on prayer, and on the scriptures. They were gathered together. We can't miss that. Those who followed Jesus were gathered together. It says that the community of disciples were gathered in anticipation of Jesus' promise being fulfilled. In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23, uh, we're exhorted, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as, in, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. And I believe that this is one of the main components that is under attack in our day, especially following the past few years that we've had. That many who once attended church are now not going at all, or going so infrequent that they find themselves weak in their faith, subject to stumbling and falling. Many who once attended church are now not coming at all. And it begins with being able to watch sermons online or listen to podcasts, justifying that you're still going to church by listening to these things. But in reality, church is the gathering of God's people. It is not just hearing a message taught online. Especially the people of Jesus gathered together, those who love him and follow him. I can't help but think that there is a warning here for us today. That you're going to miss out on what God wants to do in and through his church if you are not physically gathered together with his people. Doesn't mean that he won't work. Doesn't mean that he doesn't work. But you are missing out on what God wants to do through his people by not gathering physically here. Or whatever congregation you're a part of if you're visiting. But we also see what was going on at this time as they were praying. They were giving time to continual prayer. They were in, in agreement in this prayer. This is one of the main things that we see over and over and over that the early church was continuing to do. When someone was in prison, what were they doing? They were praying. When they were ministering, they were praying over people. When they were, they were interceding for people, they would lay hands on them, they would pray for them. Praying, praying, praying. In, our, in chapter 2, which we'll look at possibly next week, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, their teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Jesus taught them to be persistent in prayer. So it's not a, a novel concept that they'd actually be doing that when they would gather together. Luke chapter 11 verse 13 says that if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. What do we see them doing? They're praying, waiting for the anticipation that God will move and work. He also spoke to them in Luke 18.1 of a parable that men 
always ought to pray and not lose heart. He encouraged them to continue in prayer. They were devoted to consistent times of prayer until the promise came. And then they continued to pray after. And then we see here, and this might be more of an illusion here than something very plain. They were digging into the scriptures. What's the first thing that we see Peter use? A specific scripture that they were looking to follow and direct their steps as they waited for the Lord. And we know later on that there was an emphasis on reading the scriptures and and listening to the teaching of the disciples and doing them. In verse 15, it says, In those days that Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. See right there? This scripture. He's falling back on the word of God to direct their steps as a church, as a, that new beginnings of God's work, which the Holy Spirit, oh, we can hear that the Holy Spirit is speaking through God's word by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So that all of this that has happened, involving Judas, was already talked about. And they're relating this psalm to what has occurred to Jesus and what has happened with Judas as well. And Luke, being a historian, he includes this parenthetical statement in verse 18 and 19, you know, uh, talking about how this man purchased a field with the wages, the money that he had received for, um, for betraying Jesus. And, and or the, the money that was, uh, he had received was bought a, a field. But we're told that, you know, Jesus went and hung himself. And the details here is that he, he died. And, uh, you know, when they cut him down from the tree or whatever, he fell off. And it was a messy scene. But the reason Luke is recording this in verse 19, you'll notice it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. This is, a, this is something that happened that you can recall that happened. He's a historian. And so the field is called in their own language, which would have been, um, uh, man, I'm blanking on it. Pastor Greg? I'm sorry. <laughs> it wasn't Hebrew. It was the um, Aramaic. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, so Aramaic. It was written in Aramaic, Echodama, and that is translated in, for us in English, the field of blood, or translated from the Greek. You know. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. So he pulls this line from uh, Psalm 69, where it says, let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. And let another take his office, which is pulled from Psalm 109.8. So these are the scriptures that Peter uses for the basis of finding a replacement for Judas. And there are these two rather seemingly obscure verses in the Psalms. But when you look at these Psalms and the passages that these verses are found in, they're Psalms about a righteous sufferer. They're pointing to Jesus. 
and that he would be suffering for his righteousness. And in the verses that Peter uses to speak concerning Judas are about the sufferer's enemies, those that betrayed him. And so they're able, through the power of the Spirit, to understand what God was doing through his word and how it was pertaining to the given situation. They understood what had happened with Judas was prophesied by the Holy Spirit through David and determined that there needed to be a replacement for his ministry, for his part in the ministry, based on the context of these scriptures. Then Peter sets out the criteria for that replacement. Therefore, in verse 21, if these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. This person that would take Judas's spot would have had to have been around from the beginning. One who could attest to all that Jesus had taught and did. One who had to have been around from the day that John baptized him to the day that he ascended. And so that narrowed down the scope of those present to two people. There were witnesses, two men who could fit that criteria to become a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so in verse 23, we see they proposed two names, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry. An apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. So they prayed. They prayed. They asked for the Lord's guidance. Based on his wisdom, who should fill Judas's spot? They appealed to the Lord's knowledge of the hearts of all men. They realized that this calling would demand from this person in their life to bear witness, to testify to the truth, even if it meant death. And we see them do something pretty traditional for Jewish people. It says that they cast their lots in verse 26. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was a number with the eleven apostles. So casting lots, it's it was a common way to determine divine choice, who God's choice was. The way this was done is described in a few different ways, but here it may have looked like each name of the two men were placed on a stone, and then they would put that stone into a container, and then the container was shaken until one of the names came out. And by casting lots, they would do that as a means to determine who God's choice was. And by casting lots, they could have had the view that the Lord was choosing the replacement just like he chose the original disciples, the original 12. The casting of lots was seen throughout Israel's history as a means of determining God's will in the dividing of the land, the choosing of leaders and more. And Proverbs even expressed the idea or the thought that the law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So 
So we see this way that they were trying to follow God's will by using this method of casting lots. But what's interesting is to note that after the Holy Spirit came, we see no other time in the Bible where the disciples relied on casting of lots. What we do see is the Holy Spirit speaking to the disciples, giving direction, revealing his will. We find a church that was guided by the Holy Spirit. And so to conclude our study in chapter 1 this morning, I want to revisit a couple points here. Jesus has chosen to partner with his disciples to complete his mission of proclaiming the kingdom of heaven until he returns. Jesus calls his disciples to a ministry of witnessing to the world of him, testifying of his resurrection. This calling is for all who are Christ's. This means that everyone that has received Jesus has been given the privilege of being used by Jesus to proclaim him to the world. What a privilege it is. You who are here today that might be newer in your relationship with Jesus, Jesus wants to use you. You who are struggling in life, Jesus wants to use you. To you who are older and not as able as you once were, Jesus wants to use you. You who have backslidden, who have been distant from Jesus, there is grace and forgiveness, and he desires to use you today. The message that we preach is all about him. What he has done to save those who come to him. The message is about how God became a man to save man from sin. To offer forgiveness and cleansing, healing and restoration, hope and new life. The message is how Jesus has conquered death, saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And those who live and believe in him shall never die. We're not going to die, those who are his. The message is about sinners being brought into the family of God because of the abundant compassion of God. If our salvation is based in all of what Jesus has done, I know that there is a place for all who come to him in his kingdom. A person becomes a witness for Jesus when they have received all that he has done for them and responds to his call to follow him. Remember, the word witness in the Greek is where we get the word martyr. When we receive this gospel message that Jesus laid down his life for us, we can't help but be those that lay down our lives for him. By telling the world the great hope that we have found in him. Today we have a baptism. And it's fitting, I think. These men and women who are proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus today. And that their lives no longer are their own. But a witness to the world around them. To Jesus and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you, first and foremost, for Jesus. 
and his life that has been laid down for us, that we might have new life, fullness of life, life everlasting. Lord, hope. Freedom from guilt and shame. Lord, that's not all. We have the privilege of being called to open our mouths and to use our hands and our feet to bring you glory, to speak of all that you have done. Lord, we pray that you would empower us, overflowing with the Spirit. Lord, with boldness that we've seen in, in our in this book of Acts, to proclaim all that you've done in our lives, all that you've done for those who have come to you. Lord, but also to witness that you will return, Lord, and that those in those days, if one does not know you, you'll reply, I don't, I've never known you, depart from me. That today is the day of salvation and the day of choosing. So Lord, let us not neglect that. If there's anybody here today who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I encourage you to raise your hand right now and to receive Him. To Accept what he has done for you on the cross and the forgiveness of sins that he has so offered freely. There's nothing that you have to do to receive it. Don't let another day go by without considering who he is and what he has done for you. Father, we pray and ask for your blessing upon the baptism that we will have this after service, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing in and through those that are being baptized. We pray that you would overflow us with the joy of your salvation, Lord, and the work of your, uh, your spirit in the lives of our brothers and sisters. That today... things.